When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now, go. Hello and welcome to episode 233 of What Most People Think and this is the week where I'm going to be back out on the road touring so get ready Travelodge man stock up your Greggs okay all the KFCs around the country just get ready for some extra revenue because I am going to be boosting the local GDPs of, of, of several county councils that I come to on tour. And with me is a man who's also back on tour in mid-February is Simon Evans. Welcome back to the show, mate. Thank you very much indeed, Jeff. Very nice to be back. I can't believe 233 episodes. That is amazing. That's like over 50 years, isn't it, or something? I can't, I can't do the maths, but it feels like you must have been doing it before Joe Rogan. <laughs> Well, I've done it weekly and I've stuck with it and, and I've achieved partial growth, I think is the, <laughs> is the official word. I think that the people listen, they, there's definitely something to be said for having done 233 episodes. Don't go, well, he's stuck with it. It must be doing okay. Yeah. And a lot of people say, I've never heard of it, but he's stuck with it. So it's sort of a reverse psychology. I suppose it works well on your mindset, doesn't it? You're now thinking, well, I cannot save it with this show. There's a limit. If they don't like it now, this isn't going to tip the balance. So it kind of takes the pressure off. There's a lot of podcasts out there. So to be achieving partial growth in an era where everyone that's in a relationship with somebody that can talk on a microphone is doing a yeah. podcast, I, I'll i take that. As you're back out on tour, I just wondered about your eating habits on tour. I know it's a weird thing to say, but what's your approach? Because obviously the price of food has gone up, and I'd imagine that you're somebody who has an eye on the bottom line. What are you going? Are you going for one good hot meal that you buy out a day? Are you a packed lunch guy, or are you doing fucking pot noodles in the Premier Inn? When I'm on the actual road doing the service stations, I'm now largely about the banana huel. The wood, sorry, that genuinely <laughs> shook me. I'm about the banana huel is, I think, for our listeners, the least of, of a, a sort of list of a thousand things people would not expect to hear from Simon Evans on a podcast. I'm all about the banana huel was up there. What it really it's like a sort of remarketed Angel Delight. And I, I loved Angel Delight in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. And now it's got extra minerals and vitamins in it. You know, it's fantastic. And um, oh, fuck. see if he did this, this huel thing. I mean, no, Romish Ranganathan, he's got in great shape through doing the huel. And I want to keep ignoring. It, but then when people like yourself are doing the heel, I don't want to do the heel. It's only because it's the best. I don't have to drink it all the time, but it is, you know, because it's the best thing in a service station, to be honest. Mm. And it's better than those supposedly high protein grenade bars or whatever, which are disgusting. But of course, when I get to the destination, if I time it right, it's the local spoons, isn't it? Spoons is is excellent because it's got a range. They're doing everything from Thai noodles 
I don't know how authentic the recipe is, but it look <laughs> it, it certainly has the appearance of, of a Thai, Thai noodle. Sounds like an instruction in itself, doesn't it? But uh, I, I go for the mixed grill as a rule. You get a, a variety of cheaper cuts of uh, of animal. And that really produces a very steady energy flow. The thing I have to avoid at my age is um, hyperglycemia. That's that's my danger. So you're saying the mixed grill. I think at Weatherspoon's mixed grill is also like a review of it as well, <laughs> where you go, some of it's going to be chewed. The sausage will probably be all right. I mean, the bacon, but the egg will be there. You can't get that wrong, but... You can get the chop wrong. But I listen, I won't hear a word against them. They're fantastic. And as people have pointed out, you get a decent uh, bit of exercise trying to find the loose as well as a rule. You know? <laughs> the counting house is the one on George Street, isn't it, in Edinburgh, which was, I think... Probably probably the kind of largest financial institution in Scotland before Spoons took it over. And it's absolutely vast. It's like entering a, a period drama when you go in there, only in modern dress. You know, it's, I love well, it. Well, there's one where, where I live. And yeah, there's the step count of going to the toilet. The toilet's so far away that it's a completely different ecosystem to the rest of the pub. It's like the temperature's different, you know, like the, the, the humidity is, is, is yeah, different. It's like when you go for a nice walk in the countryside and you get up to a bit of altitude and there's a different wind and stuff, yeah. <laughs> God bless Weatherspoons. On today's show, we're going to be looking at the COVID inquiry, which has now moved up to Scotland, and we'll examine the mysterious case of Nicola Sturgeon's disappearing WhatsApp messages. Uh, we'll look at Gary Lineker and the latest instalment of his long-running soap opera, and we'll have a general look at hypocrisy in football. And for the patrons only, our board member-level patrons will be posing questions to Simon, among which would be, are all comedians vegan? New patrons. I missed a couple from the breaking news episode of last week. So we've got three names here for you, Simon, to uh, speculate on who they sound like. <laughs> and Ian Wilson. Did I did I mention his name? I thought Ian Wilson maybe sounds like a golf correspondent for Five Live. Well, Ian Wilson is a fairly well-known comedy agent, isn't he? But do we have to sort of overlook that? I suppose we probably should. And this is how little I know about the industry. Who for? Uh, isn't that Dominic's agent, Dominic Frisbee's agent, Ian Wilson? I'm pretty sure it is. Well, I, w- I would say that if Ian Wilson is a comedy agent and he's a became a patron of mine and I didn't know who he was, this could be a very brief patronage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Robert Black just sounds like one of the many crime writers that we have these days. A lot of crime being written about, a lot of uh, true crime or invented crime, just murders, really. We just write a lot about murder and for some reason it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. You know, well, there's the twee crime genre, which is very big now, isn't it? Richard Osman has probably sort of scooped up a lot of the the centre. You know, where elderly ladies have a club where they solve murders, that sort of thing, and murders that take place in tea rooms. But I think Robert Black's a bit more old-fashioned than that, isn't he? He's more like dredging a body up from a canal. That's how that starts. Yeah, yeah. A divorced detective who grimaces after every sip of whiskey. I was going to say, they've got to have a couple of things and they've got to have some particular kind of cuisine they're fond of these days, a detective, because you, you get another oh, really? 20% of listening. Yeah, my wife, for instance, she likes Donna Leone, who writes a novel set in Venice. But his big thing, obviously, you've got the, the architecture and the history of Venice and that you also, he's, he's got lots of pasta recipes that crop up every so often. Robert Black is probably a haggis expert, I think, isn't he? Well, I suppose what you're merging there is two underrated audiences, Murder, people love murder. People love food, the foodie thing. 
Yeah. So you, you throw them in there. What what other underrated thing like? Well, 20 years ago, it used to be what was your musical affiliation? Like Ian Rankin's guy, I think, listens to the to the old Stones, doesn't he? He just listens mm. to classic era Stones. One of the detectives was big into jazz. Was that Billingham's detective? Was that Sergeant? I'm not a crime detective no. guy. I mean, I've said before in the podcast, I do think it's one of those things that, like bear baiting, we'll one day look at why the hell murdering people was... Such a huge genre of entertainment and across books, songs, films, movies, just killing people. Because it's weird because other crimes, like if you say murder on the Orient Express, fair enough. People go a violent beating on the Orient Express. For some reason, that seems worse than someone being actually killed or sexual assault on the Orient Express. Is- well, I suppose a violent beating suggests that you have a strong animosity towards somebody, you need to release the pressure by visiting pain upon them, whereas murder means that there is a calculation, a colder calculation. Murder has always had glamour. I don't understand it, but, you know, it makes money. Well, there is, if you look in all of the history of of literary fiction, you know, going like Dostoevsky, Jane Austen, Mm. whatever, all the way going back, there's only two major themes, and they are sex and death. Yeah. And nowadays, sex is so like every day, so normalised, you know, divorce, adultery, Mm. you know, these things barely warrant any kind of elevated heart rate, whereas death is still a little bit of a transgression. Still got a little bit of jeopardy. I mean, you mentioned Austin there. The third guy in our list of new patrons is Richard Austin. It would be great if he was a descendant of Jane Austen and has decided to just dine out on that forever. Or yeah. even if he just made it up. I mean, it would be a great thing <laughs> on a certain kind of dating site, wouldn't it, to be like proud feminist and proud great-grandson of Jane Austen. Could be. I'd make that up. That would work. <laughs> I mean, it would work with a certain kind of woman. Let's put it that way. I think you would be cucked, wouldn't you, quite quickly. I think <laughs> it could be the disappointed heir of the Austin Motors fortune, which um, yes. has probably dwindled dramatically since it was sold to British Leyland. It's spelled Austin. It's spelled like Jane Austen. Yeah, fair enough then. Yeah, well, hopefully he is. I don't know. Is he entitled to a tenner from the Bank of England? <laughs> so it's got Jane on it, doesn't it? Domain talking point. So I've got a couple of letters here. Well, this is from uh, Patreon. So always looking how to improve the Patreon offer. Is basically Richard from Sheffield says that um, I don't tell people that I'm going to do TV appearances. So as you know, Simon, you know, popping up on these shows, these topical news review type shows, Yeah, you do a fair few of them. So it's not always something that you sort of, tout in a way because they come around quite fast but I guess I could give a heads up I was on um obviously we're kind of Rangers Selwick aren't we you're doing yes. the GB News I'm doing the talk on Talk TV so I was on the talk with uh Penny Smith and Daisy McAndrew and um well I quite like it because it's the news but it, I don't know there's something about their color palette that makes it feel antsy enough that if someone says something like really unpalatable, it might just get missed because you go, well, the colours are quite nice. you know. Yeah. Like- <laughs> I worked with Penny Smith in uh, 1995. Can you guess or, or, or uh, identify which TV show that would have been? 1995, I mean, Pebble Miller won. She was the co-host of The Krypton Factor, would you believe? So what, you were, you were on The Krypton Factor? I was a competitor. You can find my episode on YouTube. I was the first and I think remain only contestant to ever be disqualified halfway through the final super round. This is amazing. Tell me everything. They tried a new format to revive the TV show and it didn't work. I think it ended up being the last series. They had like all the previous rounds that everyone's familiar with, the uh, memory round and the assault course and everything. And then they all bought you advantages, which you could trade in to have advantages in a super round, which was like a kind of in 
indoor assault course with mental puzzles in, mm. and physical challenges mixed up. And so we set off on that, and um, I was in the lead. I thought I'd won, but then there was a bit where you had to solve a code on a computer. You, you'd type mm-hmm. in the letter T, and the letter S would come up on the screen. So you go, okay, so I've got to type in the, the letter before the mm-hmm. one I want in the alphabet. And I solved, I think, three of these puzzles, and then the fourth one, I thought I'd solved it, but I'd entered one letter wrong. It was supposed to be sharp, and I'd entered sharp with a J. I'd gone one yeah. late instead of early. Nothing happened on the screen, so I assumed I'd, I'd finished, and then I, I set off for the lasers you know, and started doing the Mission Impossible bit and um, ended up climbing up a big sort of scaffolding gantry type affair with yellow K at the top, which was my color for Krypton, mm. lifted it up and waved it around. I'm one, I'm the king of the world. And um, Penny Smith had to come along and inform me that I hadn't, in fact, finished the computer code round correctly and I'd been disqualified. But what? Couldn't wish for a nicer person to break the bad news to you. That's a good point. If I ever do hear of, you know, like a, a death in the family or whatever, I might ask <laughs> roll, roll back the years. I mean, what was funny about, you remember the final challenge on Krypton Factor? Now, I mean, I will mention Gladiators again in, in a minute, but like female fitness has moved on so much now. You know, like it's, it's a different level. There are a lot of more women doing weights and bodybuilding. But I remember in the Krypton Factor, the final challenge was there was always that thing as they get so far, but a lot of them couldn't sort of support their own body weight. So you'd often see one of them sort of getting a fireman's carry off a soldier at the end. So it'd all be great. <laughs> it would all be going great guns. I, th- I wondered if you were going to tell me that you were actually one of the only male contestants needed to be carried by a soldier. <laughs> David Domain, is, um, he's got a really impressive term for us. So you, you might know this one, Simon. We were talking in last week's episode with Catherine, and she was talking about her sort of patchwork of views that come from both left and right increasingly. And David Domain says that there's a term for those who have views that are a mixture of left and right, syncretic. Were you aware of this? I didn't know this. No, I haven't uh, heard that. That's a good word. I think we probably all aspire to that, wouldn't we? Syncretic, yeah. It seems like the logical thing for a human to be. Um, he says that'll impress them on Times Radio. You're not wrong. I'd be interested to know what syncretic views Catherine has, though. I would have placed her strongly on the liberal left. Oh, no, she's been on a journey. She's been she? on a journey, which she sort of blamed me for, but also her husband, Bobby. Bobby is uh, fairly based, I think the word is the word is wow. these days. So How intriguing. No, 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 it, it, it's really interesting. I think these days that's where all the most interesting people are, of sort of saying, hang on, I'm not sure I'm certain about anything. And one thing I am certain of is that I think in some ways the people that worry me the most is the pe- it, there's the danger of people disagreeing with you, but also the danger of people who disagree, who agree too fervently. That also freaks me out too keenly. Yeah, most I think that that's true about almost all my political opinions. When people think you, you know, say who radicalised you, you know, what right wing commentator did you read that? And I go, there is, I have never read a right wing, like a really right wing commentator or columnist or polemicist or anything of that sort that has moved me one fraction of an inch to the right. You know, quite often I go, yeah. well, hang on, that's a bit much. You know, there are some like Theodore Dalrymple's books are fantastic, you know, his time as a prison doctor and his analysis of how, you know, the underclass end up without help because of the hmm. fashionable views of the middle class, whatever. Those, those, that, he, he is right wing and he has persuaded me of some of the mechanisms that, you know, well-meaning liberal policies can deliver. But almost always, to the extent that I've been radicalised, it's by seeing the utter nonsense, the hypocrisy and the blatant lies told by the left. That's always been what's shifted my dial. I used to call it the three H's, hypocrisy, hyperbole and hysteria. Yeah. And obviously the more extreme ends of the Remain campaign really crystallised that. I remember when it was the, leaving the EU would release some sort of super strain of gonorrhea. 
I do think that the, the right have come roaring back on that front, you know, the cultural <laughs> right are, are sort of going toe-to-toe. But, yeah, those things can mobilise you pretty quickly. Um, he goes on to say that the most syncretic party we have in these days in the UK is the SDP and, to a lesser extent, reform. I suppose one person who's fairly syncretic is Donald Trump. I mean, if you look at his economic policies, they're very domestic, very nationalistic, very protectionist, you know, something that Biden has secretly had a lot of continuity with. So... I mean, it doesn't sound like the, the most uh, likely objective for Donald Trump. He's incredibly syncretic. That's what I've always said. I don't know if you could call Trump's policies what was sophisticated or complex enough to amount to being syncretic. Yeah. <laughs> if I've understood the term correctly. I don't think he sat down and thought that that's what he's going to be. I think it's a series of opportunism and pragmatism, I would say. Yeah. yeah. What most people think. So the thank you. I mean, the second week running, talking about Gladiator, the return of the show, Gladiator. My son is already banging into it. He's he's walking around the house going, when you feel the power. And so it's quite nice that there's this kind of portal in time between the 90s and now. And I think it's good for a whole generation of kids to, well, experience their parents discussing the shagability of each Gladiator and who's got a steroid dick and, you know. You know, who's wearing hair extensions and all that sort of stuff. But also we, we, we had a little game uh, with me, my wife and my son of our, what would our gladiator name be? Now, my wife went for the White Witch. That doesn't sound as racially led as, as it might sound. That's more of a sort of family thing. And my son was Jack in the Box because he's quite lively. And I got Forehead. Nice. Yeah. Well, at least you've got a forehead, you know. I mean, it's defined by a fairly thick hairline. It might be moving backward a little bit. But just forehead, it just made me think of it go facing off against forehead. And I thought I would always I would always have to do like a slap of my own forehead. I would have to have like like a little mime that kind of reinforced the name. What you are, Jeff, what you are is your highbrow. You are literally highbrow. That is what you are, you know, and it's, it goes against your, your type. I don't know, but then in a relative sense, the further back the forehead goes, the, relatively the brows actually seem low. Yeah, I'm forehead. What You know, what would your gladiator name be? It's a good thing to think about with your family, but you might, well, you might feel undermined by the process. Everyone else got a good one. I got a shit one. Just on that note, you know, the way it's been commissioned and brought back was a, uh, has been a success. I know that you've got a Radio 4 show that's been commissioned that's coming out soon. Just tell us quickly about that. Yeah, it's a show I worked out with a guy called Jason Hazley, and it's being made by David Tyland Positive, and it uh, starts on the 11th of February on the Sunday. They've got, I think there's a new time slot. I think it's a Sunday with the Monday repeat, but don't hold me to that. It's a very, very light thing. It's to do with online reviews. It's called One Person Found This Helpful. Oh, okay, nice. Frank Skinner is hosting, which is tremendous, and essentially, you know, it's celebrating the creative genius of the British public through the medium of online reviews, and we have to sort of guess what's being reviewed and that. That sort of thing. That's a doozy. I mean, one of my favourite ones, there used to be a hotel that we stayed at um, in Ibiza that was up quite high on a sort of hillside. And uh, one of the one-star reviews said that um, it was an incredible view, one of the best I've ever seen, but the stairs to get there were a nightmare. <laughs> and he thought, well, that is why the view is good. Like, it's because it's high. Absolutely. I mean, I used to have a routine about um, the fact that we went to see a concentration camp um, and it was shut. And we all sort of had to, like, internalise our disappointment because it was a weird moral thing. Yeah. And then one of our Australian mates was basically like bitching about the fact it was shut. And like I saw the last thing you should complain about as a, when it comes to concentration camps is the fact that they're shut. It's more than being open was the, I think, the, <laughs> uh, the real problem. Um, the fuck you, Simon. Over to you for this one. 
Okay, well, I had a look. There was a, a mate of mine on Twitter who shared this privately the other day. I wouldn't probably have noticed it otherwise, but it's a Labour MP who's living in a council flat. She's criticised the government for having no solutions to the housing crisis. That is in inverted commas. This is the Daily Mail, of course. And yet she is still living in a taxpayer-funded council flat. I think they get about 80000 a year, don't they, MPs, plus mm-hmm. decent expenses and so on. And she's admitted that she doesn't really still need to live there anymore. But, you know, it's obviously slipped her mind. Her salary is £86,584. So her name is Apsana Begum. And I don't know exactly which borough. She's the MP for Limehouse and Poplar. Hmm. Although they've written that in the email as Limehouse and Popular, which I don't think is accurate. But uh, <laughs> anyway, that is disgraceful to me. I understand the appeal of staying in a council flat when you no longer exactly need it. I've known a few people who've done that. Yes, yeah. I know one bloke who bought the book off his flatmate when they left and, and, and kept on very nicely hmm. for a few years and then got the um, right to buy scheme in his name, even though he hadn't ever actually sort of been the proper name on the... So there are people who pull it off. But I think if you're an MP, you've got to be held to slightly higher standards of moral behaviour. Look, I've got to try and do a little bit of balance here. And in her defence, it's admirable that she's not only just living within her community, she has selflessly decided to stay... <laughs> in the most hard-up element, elements of, <laughs> of her community because how else uh, can she do her job in Westminster? OK, we're going to discuss a bit of politics now and we'll start with Nicola Sturgeon. Last week, the COVID inquiry went to Scotland. I think it's great that it's going on tour I think they should be like one of those big rock shows. You know, they used to do where they always used to boast about how many vans and how much cabling and I mean, all stuff that now rock and roll bands would try and suppress because of the effect on the planet. But back then, it was a sort of badge of honour. And um, I think they should go all over, really, do shows in Dubai, just take it around the globe. It's a hit, really. It's a hit. And one of the things that bugged me initially was the opening remarks from one of the KCs was that he set out what they were going to be discussing and then he said we would ask whether the government did enough to protect people so I sort of so this is the prism through which you're always seeing this is that they should have done more there should have been more restrictions I think it would be good to just say enough or too much because I can remember in COVID there was always this talk of the NHS being uh, overwhelmed but there were definitely periods where I felt like it was underwhelmed there was definitely a period where they'd scared the shit out of the public so much that it was quite clear that certain aspects of the NHS were massively under pressure, you know, A&E and anywhere that had ventilators. But then there was other bits where, well, we all saw the TikTok dances, right? There was time. So, I mean, first up, has that been an annoyance for you with this COVID inquiry? The, the, the sort of idea that they're trying to prosecute seems to be fairly one note. I completely agree with you, Jeff, and I think it's actually a very serious point. The extent to which the the conclusion has been reached before the inquiry begins, and then they quite obviously seek evidence that supports it. And I totally agree with you. I think there was, I think it was massive overreaction to it. I think it's been catastrophic. I don't know that. I mean, obviously, we only really have Sweden as a comparison to see what might happen, and Sweden is different in all sorts of important demographic ways. But I think that was the problem, not just in this country, but everywhere. Basically, China anchored our response. You know, the idea of a psychological Mm. anchor, if you're trying to flog a car, you go, what do you think it's worth, 10 grand? And people go, no, it's worth five or six grand. But if you say to people, do you think it's worth three grand? They don't go, oh, no, it's worth five or six grand. You know, they'll always knock you down a bit. 
Well, we started with China's authoritarian massive overreaction to it, aiming for net zero. And we went, well, we won't go full China, but we better, you know, mm. it was a terrible, terrible overreaction. And it led to, to some weird distortions and their care home stuff. And that was very distressing. But that was all still largely a function of the fact that we were trying to overreact to the whole thing. So I totally agree with you. And it also, it messed with people's minds. And I know a lot of people, a lot of people, I know a handful of people quite well, but who I don't think have ever really recovered from it psychologically, you know, the extent to which they were being sold lies and obvious propaganda and things that just didn't make sense. Well, this this is the question I have, is whether or not this is actually the right time to do the inquiry, because we're sort of still seeing, you're sort of seeing people, certainly people with kids as well, where you kind of go, well, they didn't ever really come back for it. You know, like how some people never really came back from NARM. Yeah. There's certainly a sense with COVID where you go, right, that guy had a different experience for whatever reason. So so there's kind of issues that, yet again, the COVID inquiry seems to be prosecuting one angle. And then into this mix comes Nicola Sturgeon. And it, it transpired, it was said at the inquiry that all of her WhatsApp messages during the pandemic appeared to have been deleted. And she's retained no messages whatsoever. So it should be said that um, Sturgeon then countered but actually, I mean, it sounded, I've got to be honest, just a personal thing. It sounded like a bit of a fudge whereby she was sort of quite cute with language and that some messages were retained. And I just don't believe her is, is my take on it. But this is the question that I wanted to ask you is like, when people don't hand over their messages to the COVID inquiry, it makes them seem untrustworthy. But when they do hand them over, it makes them seem stupid. I mean, like I've got to say, at that time, for the people that didn't have the fucking foresight, you almost go, like, is this why Nicola Sturgeon was a good politician? Because she quite quickly identified that this shit is going to bite us on the arse. You mean like the sort of Dominic Cummings text messages that were full of profanity and, and strong, you know, the kind of Malcolm Tucker from Thick of It sort yes, of language yeah, and yeah. that sort of thing. I personally didn't think any of the worst of Cummings or indeed Johnson for that kind of language or the intemperate kind of language or, or the actual swearing or any of that. It felt to me very plausible and, and authentic. You know, I just imagine that's what people talk to each other like when they're under a certain amount of pressure. It reminded me a tiny bit of, uh, I think it was Boris Becker who said when he was a young tennis player and he used to watch Wimbledon and what have you, he'd always see that the coach was like signaling to his player or maybe passing a little handwritten note, you know, while they're taking a breather and hmm. dabbing at their face with a towel. And he always wondered, what does it say? What is this great insight that, we, you know, the coach is passing on, you know? And when he became a world-class tennis player and he had his own coach, he, he learned what the messages say. They usually say things like, keep your eye on the ball or concentrate. Or, <laughs> or we've got you late checkout on Monday. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I feel like that's it was all quite normalizing and human. And there wasn't anyone I really felt, I didn't change my view. I mean, possibly because I was already a little bit more sympathetic towards Johnson's kind of, you know, confusion as to why have we taken on the, you know, the Neil Ferguson modeling uh, uh, and the implications rather than what we'd all agreed would be the thing of just let no rip and what have you. I mean, you know, if you come to Sturgeon with a with a kind of a sneer of distaste, which I've cultivated carefully for a number of years, <laughs> you know, yeah, this yeah. isn't going to change my view, but it doesn't significantly alter it upwards either. I think there was within her department, and probably a culture of deleting WhatsApp messages. I remember the I read about it on the BBC website, and this one this one stuck out at me. Jason Leach, who was the national clinical director, said WhatsApp deletion is a pre-bed ritual, hmm. and I think that's probably normal and actually 
arguably even quite sensible. You know, it even as a stand-up comedian, if you endlessly try and keep a track of everything you've thought and said and done. Yes. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Or in a marriage, do you know what I mean? You kind of go, ah, oh, no, but actually on the 12th, I distinctly remember you saying that it would be a good idea to visit your parents. So, do you know what I mean? But, but do you know what? I've sometimes wondered, a, a marriage-based type stenographer, yeah. And so you know those arguments where you're being charged with. So you have yeah. just somebody that sits there and keeps a record. And so you know, like when he's, it's often when somebody uh, exaggerates a bit. They go, "Well, you you have never, yeah, never shown respect to my parents." You, you always go, do this. Yeah. You always and never are the two biggest problems in relationships. So you go, actually, this is how the the male mind works. You can go, I can give you four examples of yeah. times that I was respectful to your parents, <laughs> and then so you go, well, the reason you're saying never is because it enhances your case. The yeah. idea that I've never made a concession uh, in this area. So I, I sometimes wonder if. It, I don't I, think I, it is, though. Can I say, just to interrupt, I don't think it's because it enhances your case. I think it happens naturally. I think it's human instinct. And the reason is because what we are really at uh, all times is we're governed by our emotions and our feelings, and then we prior and understand them back to ourselves with our words. So you say, you never show my parents any respect. And the reason you say that is because the emotion you're currently feeling is only explicable and excusable if your partner never shows your parents any any respect. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it implies that you have spun off the handle, you know, which is what... Well, but that's the problem. That's an old male-female problem, isn't it, is when you bring a knife to a gunfight and you yeah. sort of say, oh, but I think factually I can prove this. And you go, oh, you think this is about facts now? How cute. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting in Scotland, like she still polls incredibly well. Like if she was to uh, become leader of the SNP, again, even with all this stuff over her, it's so funny how she is sort of like a, a sort of inverse Boris Johnson in a way, and that will annoy her supporters. But is that people have sort of just decided how they feel about her. And she's a lot more popular pound for pound than Boris Johnson. But like you see, like when she came out and said, oh, I actually did hand them over, but it, what, what she said didn't actually equate to her having handed them all over. It was heavily caveated. The comments underneath are so sycophantic. It's incredible how people react to her. She sort of, during COVID, I think, became the queen of Scotland in a way. And she became the sort of chief protector as well. And I, I kind of think it's funny in an age where like a lot of times people's reputation is, is managed based on what they said rather than what they did. You know, Boris Johnson said, let the bodies pile high, but actually had two very long lockdowns, very strict conditions. And Nicola Sturgeon sort of was out every day with a kind of... Uh, midday chat show type briefings. It was a bit like sort of political loose women. But she had a very similar outcome, same fuck-ups in the care system. The reason for most deaths is to do with comorbidities, uh, demographics, obesity, uh, drug abuse, age, that kind of stuff, you know, to, to kind of present uh, the deaths as a, a function, an artifact of policies and government and competence without having those figures to hand is, is, you know, is a waste of time. It's a sham. And, you know, that's to some extent why I feel bad for Boris as well, because none of that is taken into account. You know, the reason for most of our different figures from a lot of other countries in Europe is to do with the extent to which people had not been looking after themselves beforehand. No, exactly. Victim blaming. But that's the reality of it. That's life, you know, and people need to wake up and, and recognize that a little bit, I think. But I will also say Nicola Sturgeon was the closest this country has had to a sort of fairly recent phenomenon, which is, I guess, a worldwide thing, a, a kind of new 
icon of, of liberal left, you know, the, the kind of Jacinda and Justin Trudeau, you know, she's that kind of like the, the shiny new model. And, and the British government has been very resistant to having those, despite, I mean, you could say that Blair was the very first of them, I suppose. But that's what slightly bugs me is the irrational belief in those political figures. They don't realise that it's just the same thing on the other side where they're completely blind to those failings. Like, for example, you know, when Sturgeon gave that famous interview where the paradoxes of her position on gender just crumbled apart within like a minute and a half. Right. You you still saw that people were lurching and bending over backwards to explain how she is actually still right. She was doing the right thing. You're all evil. And so I don't mind people like being fans of her, but the fact that they can't see they're the equivalent of the head in the sand people on the other side is what bugs me. Yeah, absolutely. But politics is a tribal game now and has been for a long time. And I think was it Lee Kuan Yew said in, you know, the Singapore guy is that, you know, in a multicultural country, people will not vote simply in accordance with their economic interests. They'll vote along tribal lines. You know, I think that's starting to happen in Scotland now. It feels like it is very much a a tribal sort of situation, you know, which is to say that there's a, a kind of loyalty issue which which goes beyond even party politics for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the Hamza is nowhere near as popular. I mean, this is a very different... No, no, it's no. very interesting that kind of Rishi and Hamza are both figures, you know, British Asians that have come in to lead a party at a time when it's really fucking hard to lead that party. Yeah. And Hamza, I mean, he said some mad shit. I don't know if I've mentioned it um, on the podcast before, but he there was that famous clip where he was with these Ukrainian ladies and they were all quite attractive. And he said to them, all right, ladies, it's all ladies today. Where, where are the men? Where are the men? And they were like, they're a fighting war. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he's got a bit of foot in mouth sort of syndrome. But he's been out and about. He's been uh, doing the round saying that, you know, Labour are definitely going to win. Starmer's definitely going to be Prime Minister. The undercurrent of that is that, well, you don't need to vote Labour to get rid of the Tories, right? There's a sort of smack of desperation there. It's like, you can right. still have us in Scotland. And obviously, we're not going to do independence, but we're just going to keep saying that we will. And that'll make you feel good. And you won't have to vote Labour. So it's just the most, like, it's most entry level. You know, in the same way that the Tories are scrabbling about for a reason that you should vote for them. Yeah. The SNP is sort of doing the same. It's like, you don't, you don't have to. You get two for one. Hamza's <laughs> crazy. Crazy Hamza's two for one. <laughs> vote SNP. Get rid of the Tories. I can't say fairer than that. And apologies for this accent. <laughs> you have found a very plausible Scots accent that is at the same time the least like Hamza of any Scots accent I can imagine. <laughs> well, I mean, look, let's just close this section out by saying I, I was walking several different tightropes there and it's probably best to move on. So, yeah, just a hyperview bits. I'm back out on tour from this Friday. I'm in Maidenhead. That one's sold out. I'm in Kings Lynn on Saturday. I was told that was sold out for a while, but it's not sold out, as sometimes happens. And then, you know, there's dates coming up, which I've mentioned quite a bit. One thing I would say is that the only London date of this leg of the tour, Wimbledon Theatre, at the end of April, it was showing and sold out for about a week and a half for reasons best known to someone else, but it's on sale now. So if you want to come to the London show, uh, Wimbledon Theatre, it was great fun, the one we did last time. By the end of the tour, that'll be the end of April, you'll see what a man looks like who's been travelodging and KFC and Greg's in for that long. And it'll be a bit like that thing, you know, Super Size Me with Morgan Spurlock, where he just ate McDonald's for a while and he started to get seriously ill by the end of it. So just... 
just come along. I'll, I'll, I'll probably need to wear a bit of bronzer, put it that way. And Simon, obviously, you'll be on the banana hue, so it could be a good yeah. balance for the experiment. Uh, and you got any, any ones in particular that you want to push? First one is uh, the Horsham on the 22nd of February, then Norwich on the 23rd. That always sells out. Tainmouth and Plymouth down in the West Country on the 28th, 29th. And Chesham on the 2nd of March, and so on and so on it goes. The show name is Have We Met? So if you Google Have We Met Simon Evans, you'll get, or just go to the Simon Evans, which is my website, and uh, you'll see all the dates there. And uh, it's a great show. I'm very proud of it. It's long, it's quite. Uh, it's, you know, it's got a bit of a narrative, a bit of light and shade again. Oh, hello. It's a little bit of uh, emotional depth plumbed and a little bit of flank is shown, I think. Yeah. Wow. Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, I also got a bit of emotional depth in mind is when I talk about the time that I went to my room in the Premier Inn in Carlisle and they didn't have a metal spoon and I wanted to eat a yogurt and I didn't know what to do. So I'm trying to just disclose a bit more emotionally. Okay, let's talk about Gary Lineker. It's become one of those culture war subjects that just comes around every once in a while. Let's have a chat about Gary Lineker. You know, it's the same as for a long time. It was, are right-wing comedians funny? Are left-wing comedians only preaching? So that seems to have calmed down, but into that space has become Gary Lineker. So just to bring you up to date, he's always had something to say about most big issues. Uh, He was... Notably quiet on October the 7th. Now, we don't all have to um, comment on everything, but I think it's kind of, it becomes harder when you take stances as often as he did. And then there's been questions about whether or not he's uh, he said anything about the anti-Semitism we've seen in Britain and so on. But then quite recently, so this is the up-to-date bit, is he retweeted a, a something a, which was an argument for Israel getting banned from international football. And then uh, Lee Kern, the comedy writer, who is fairly combative, to say the least, on Twitter, had a pop at him about money he'd earned from Qatar during the World Cup. Lineker unblocks this guy and then says, right, that's actually libelous. I didn't earn money from Qatar from the World Cup. And then everyone else goes, oh, you're quite right. You earned it from Qatar for Champions League coverage before that. So, I mean, there's always a thing of just fucking let it blow over, mate. He's such... I mean, how long has he been the host of Match of the Day now? I Because what I find odd, right, is that people that say that they love the BBC and everything it stands for do sometimes seem to be the least likely to concede that it does involve certain things of your high-profile talent and it is underpinned because of the licence fee-payer model of impartiality. So he's making it hard for the BBC. If you, lo- if you love the BBC, actually, I think the easiest argument is to say he should probably give someone else a go now. I think it's a good point. I mean, I don't watch a lot of football, um, but my sense is that he's not like held in that high esteem by people who do care about football. I think a lot of people do feel the Premier League has become a little bit samey, predictable, that you know, quite a lot of things could be done to shake it up a little bit. Obviously, the same sort of three or four teams always dominate the table, which is a different issue. But, you know, at mm. least you could get some variety in the presentation that might... That that's might a, that's a bit like the podcast market, though, under Lineker, isn't it? It's the You always see the same podcast in the Champions League slots. Although I will say this, Richard uh, Osman's one with Marina Hyde is well worth a listen. Oh, is um, it? Okay. Well, it's okay. kind of annoying me because I wanted to bitch about the new, all the plethora of the rest is podcast and then the, that one comes out I'm like actually this is really fucking good but yeah, yeah generally he, he's become kind of culturally dominant he gives an interview with the Guardian 
that was sort of a bit like a Mario Balotelli, like, what, me again? Why always me? And and, and that, that's the thing that bugs me in a way, is I suppose that he tends to take quite simple positions, i.e. they're cultural positions that will probably get a massive round of applause from one group of people. Very easy to play to one side. And, you know, in a bit a bit like the same way that people don't see the comparisons between Sturgeon and Boris. But I suppose the main point I'm making about Lineker is that I don't understand why he still stays in in that position. And I don't understand why people that claim to care about the BBC don't see the value of potentially moving him on. Well, I mean, I would imagine the 1.7 million is what is exactly why he stays there. And because oh, he's sorry, 1.3. I don't want to get sued. It's 1.3, I think now. Okay. A mere 1.3 million for going. And now the highlights from the Kung Pao Stadium. <laughs> it's a tough job, Simon. It's a really fucking tough job. And then just saying things like Alan, <laughs> Micah, everything he he does grows from his status in that role. And uh, if he was to step down, which maybe he should do anyway now at this point in his career, but if he was to step down, the rest would wither fairly quickly. You know, it's all growing off that trunk in the same way that most of us as stand-up comedians know that because we're a stand-up touring comedian, we get invited onto various other things. But if you just start becoming a commentator without doing those other things, it withers fairly quickly, you know. I find it infuriating. I totally agree with you. It undermines the BBC's position and its its claim to uh, having a you know a, a singular and unique presence at the heart of British life, which justifies and legitimises the licence fee. And almost all the people who most claim to love the BBC are also the ones doing it the most damage. That's been the case for a long time now, and and have been creating the most antipathy towards it among those who would rather choose their their media and pay for it as they. Like any other commodity that you you know you select the one that you like and and then you um you cough up. Well, I I mean one thing it does remind you of with the foot kind of football fraternity is these hypocrisies as well. So for quite a long time, you know, there was taking the knee, there was the rainbow laces campaigns. You know, quite recently, I mean, you'll remember in in writers' rooms where not that long ago the only joke you ever did about a footballer was well, they're all sex offenders, you know. And, Rapist. I mean, it literally was the go-to joke about you know awful people to park in disabled bays. I mean, a lot of these. I think I'm just talking about John Terry. Obviously, never accused of sexual <laughs> offence, but I think that he sort of was the standard bearer for a lot of these uh, negative presumptions. And then very quickly, because um, footballers seem to hold a set of opinions that appealed to the liberal left, it, it did a 180. And then when push came to shove, right? I think only maybe Jamie Carragher was the only pundit that just said, "Look, I don't really want to go and be a pundit in Qatar," right? Of all the pundits who all, you know, do say all the right thing on social media all the time, he was the only one that really took a stand. And then the other thing was the rainbow laces thing, speaking up for the LGBT community. And they said that they would get booked if they did it, right? When it really left a sour taste in the mouth. So that was all it took. All the all this wave of of social justice campaigning. And it wasn't even a red card as well. I think that that was <laughs> that was particularly galling, wasn't it? Because I would just say, all right, I'll take I'll take a yellow card then. I would say, I mean, maybe I'm playing devil's advocate here. I don't give a toss whether they wear rainbow laces or not. As I say, it's not really my mm. game, not my sport. And most of the people I know who do follow it avidly, keen on the football, really don't give a toss either. I think it became like a wedge issue among quite a narrow band of, of commentators. You could say it's hypocrisy, but I will say, yeah, devil's advocate. To be honest, everyone has an Overton window depending on where they are in a particular time and place, you know. I'm sitting here like now talking to you about, you know, the politics, Nicola Sturgeon, Gary Lineker, whatever. 
and um, I might use a certain amount of language. I might think some jokes are acceptable, some jokes aren't acceptable. And then I might go and, I don't know, do a show in another country or even just for a different kind of age group or something or for young people or whatever. And I might adapt my language and the, the things I focus on. If you're a footballer in the United Kingdom and you feel it is likely to encourage gay men to play football and feel welcomed and to come along and bring their true sexuality into the game and into the changing room and not feel like they're going to be stinking the place out or unwelcome or bullied, then wearing gay badges, uh, pride badges, laces. Pride badges you know, <laughs> will, will encourage that kind of safety. That's great. It's obviously a fairly low-cost contribution to uh, the general theme that, as against 20 years ago, we're all actually perfectly fine with gay men being part of the club now. But then again, you go, are you really going to say, I'm a world-class footballer, but I'm sorry, I can't do the very best I can to get my team as far in this competition? It comes once every four years. They shouldn't have put the competition in Qatar. I'm never going to play the comedy store again because it's been bought out by Live Nation and I disagree with Ticketmaster's policies. I mean, it would be ridiculous. But that's the point is then don't make the stances and then don't get the the capital, you know, the brand capital that a lot of them have got and help build them up from holding, you know, sort of a, a friendly set of opinions towards minorities. I mean, it, it was. I mean, you're right. That World Cup was actually a sort of bonfire, which was quite useful in a way because you got to find out who just said stuff and who meant stuff. I think Virgin, who've got this this campaign that have run for their flights for quite a long time, which is I am what I am. And and every single person on this flight, it's either a lesbian with spiky hair and nose piercings. It's either like a lad wearing eyeshadow and like a skirt. And then the moment that they said to the, they said to Virgin, well, you can't land here with men wearing skirts. Virgin went, yeah, oh, okay, sorry. Sorry about that. So that is what most people think this week. Uh, Simon, thanks so much for being on the show again. Are you out gigging this week? This week, I'm actually not, I don't think. I think I'm on Headliners as your uh, board director. Oh, yeah, uh, we have to tell people now. You're on uh, Headliners now. I mean, have you had any of those controversial clips recently? Because, it, I mean, quite clearly with all social media, you probably do bits that you think, well, that was fucking funny. And they go, well, yeah, but this bit, <laughs> <laughs> this bit will get shared. Have you had any ones recently where you see it and you kind of go, okay, batten down the hatches for the next 48 hours of uh, replies? The only clip of me talking in the last couple of months that got shared widely by my enemies on social media was me um, belittling Dawn French and her shtick in the late 90s and, and early 2000s. And even then it was only to defend Richard Curtis from the accusation that he was fattish in love, actually. Had she <laughs> kind of criticised him for that? No, she hadn't. I, he'd been in some chat on a, in a book festival with his own daughter had said, I think, you know, when you, I can't remember her name, but the Hugh Grant's love interest, she was actually known as Tubbs or something, wasn't she? She was the young <laughs> actress from EastEnders who wasn't really overweight at all. Anyway, he was sort of, yeah, it was all a bit different then. And I was like, oh, come on. He gave Dawn French, you know, the role in his biggest sitcom, you know, and, and her whole hmm. joke was that you weren't allowed to say anything, but she was like absolutely enormous. And loads of people, not entirely just people on the left, but loads of people said, that wasn't her own joke. She's a much better comedian than you'll ever be. And actually, I've been trying to sort of say that. She was a great comedian, but, you know, the fact that she was fat was embraced in those days. You were allowed to take everything into account. You know, it wasn't like, oh, mm. they're the fat comedian, you know, whereas now there are comedians who will literally only talk about that and just talk about their eating disorders or whatever. You know, John Candy managed to go like a fantastic film career without once referencing the fact that he was overweight, really. You know, he was just a, a, a brilliant comedian who happened to be fat. Well, you just couldn't do that now. Well, look, stay tuned for headliners and those moments. Anyone that appears on these kind of shows now is that there are sometimes where 
I mean, it's part of the game, isn't it? When so people are expressing an opinion, you go, right, I might not be in this clip, but I've got to pick the f- correct facial expression. Uh, <laughs> if, it, if it does kick off, I've got to look like, oh, I'm not sure about this. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, we roll the dice on these things, but uh, do get tickets for Simon's tour, which starts again in mid-February. Do listen to the show that's on Radio 4 and give a follow on social media. And Simon, thanks very much for being back on What Most People Think. Pleasure, Jeff. Thank you very much. See you soon. 